Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Hold the Line is committed to helping you train your dog to an advanced level using motivational methods and without the use of fear or pain. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hold the Line. So I've got an interview for us for this particular episode. I'm very pleased to introduce you to Colette May. Colette is based in the UK, in Surrey to be precise. And she's a full member of the IMDT and an accredited Gundog Club instructor and assessor. She offers Gundog training classes through her training organisation called Lead and Listen. And she competes with her three black labs in UK working tests and field trials, as well as picking up on shoots. You can find out more about Colette and her classes from her website, which is leadandlisten.co.uk. Before we get started, I just should point out a couple of things. One is that I particularly wanted to focus on working tests, specifically retriever working tests in this um, interview with Colette, because I think it's something which people are often nervous about. They don't like the idea of being assessed and going into a competition environment. It's a bit scary the first few times. And I thought maybe it'd be good to use this opportunity to demystify working tests a little bit. And Colette um, does working tests, so she's a great person to talk to about them to give you an idea. Specifically, Colette does retriever working tests, and there are some differences between retriever tests and, for example, HBR working tests, and I'm sure spaniel working tests. And I'm going to talk at the end of this episode a little bit about HBR working tests. So what we talk about in this interview is specifically about retriever tests. So without further ado, here is Colette. Welcome to the podcast. Um, And I think maybe to start with, you can just tell us a little bit about your own dogs so the dogs that you have at the moment okay so I've got three well I've got four dogs now as you might have heard I've got a um three working labs uh, an older one who's uh seven Benji and he started me on this journey and then I've got a Angus who's four and Grace who's nearly two and a Chihuahua Shih Tzu cross just to confuse everything <laughs> a chihuahua shih tzu cross i didn't know about that one Did you not? oh yes no yeah that oh, was right. um you know claire raymond yes uh she bred from her muffin a little right. chihuahua shih tzu cross and um my daughter was desperate for a chihuahua so i thought why not so um we have a um a six month old chihuahua so yeah chihuahua yeah or shituawa anyway yes <laughs> <laughs> um anyway so um 
maybe to start with, how did you get involved in, in gun dog training originally in the first place? Okay, so I, I wanted a family pet and I've always had sort of lab crosses and lab mixes. So um, I decided to get a lab and it was my sister-in-law who uh, worked her dog. So she had spaniels and um, labradors for picking up and beating. And she said, um, get yourself a working lab. And I said, oh, but I'm not going to do anything with it. She said, oh, they're just still nicer than the showbred labs. And if you're going to get a lab, do that. So um, she sort of helped me find Benji, my first lab. And um, and that's how it all started. But I never planned on doing any of it until I got Benji. So um, I was on a different career path entirely and um, just started training him up. Realised I really enjoyed it. Realised I was quite good at it the timing and everything that seemed to all work and it ended up that um yeah he he got me on this journey of getting into gun dog training wow excellent and so um what was the age difference between benji and your next dog you said he's so- four so three year three year gap right and then you added to your group your pack yes yes and grace wasn't really planned it was um my partner colin was um, offered a puppy as a stud fee so right. um i was Angus is a lovely dog and he's he's good at his job and he's a great demo dog and he has lots going for him but he was never going to be a good competition dog for various reasons um so I was sort of thinking actually maybe I'll have another dog with Colin's breeding and his dogs are good and um uh, the breeder John Stubbs he's um he's in the, the gun dog world he's a, another panel judge and um I thought maybe this dog would have better breeding so um so I decided to instead of Colin keeping her in his kennel I'd have her in my home right so for you really the gun dog training came it was like one of the first things you wanted to do you didn't get into other dog sports first or talk general pet training first yeah and I then did. Discover gun dog training. You did I did so I had my my lab who got me involved in um training just general training I went and did the kennel club um awards you know the bronze silver kennel club awards yeah and um really enjoyed that and he was really good at it and I thought um some I think the assessor lady for the kennel club said there's a uh United Retriever Club at Sunningdale who do monthly classes um why don't I go down there with my working lab so um so that's what I did and that was a bit of an eye-opener because I was treat training and I took my daughter with me for support and um, we turned up totally out of place totally wrong attire um and why I brought my daughter, I don't know, because she was only about seven at the time. Um, and it was not a nice experience. It was walking around in circles, um, checking your dogs, which I've never done. So I didn't even know how to check my dog for pulling on the lead. Um, and about terms. And that was mostly it with a few retrieves. So it wasn't what I wanted and it wasn't what I liked. But I did like the idea of training the breed, as in to do what they're bred to do. Um so that's how I started the gun dog. But before then, I or during that process, really, I started, um, I became a dog walker. So I started my lead in some business as a dog walker. And I did a lot of helping at the RSPCA, um, getting to know different breeds, getting to know dogs, dog body language. And along that time, obviously, I did lots of courses and theory and practical courses um, to, to help me understand more. So that's right. So th- so, so the, the dog walking started first because I know the leading list and you run classes. So did the, the the walking side of things started first, and then you added in the classes. Yep, yep. So later. I did the dog walking um, with the idea that I'd like to be a trainer one day, but I thought I'm going to start at the bottom. Um, did the dog walking, then I assisted. I did the um, I did a cope course, and on that cope course, I had to assist in a, in a 
pet class, a pet training class. So I went along to the RSPCA run classes with them, a, a good behaviourist, and she assisted me and sort of mentored me really. And I did it because I had to for the course, but then she thought I was good and said, you know, can you stay and assist me on a regular basis? And that's how I started the classes. Right. So it sounds like um, I'm just thinking that you've been in quite close contact with the sort of mainstream gun dog world um, because you compete, I know. So you must have to be around people who are using aversives, even if you yourself are not. Um, how do you manage that, that potential conflict or what is your sort of solution to, to the, the conflict that exists really between these two worlds, force free training and the mainstream gun dog world? It is hard and there are times that I struggled with it and I think in my early days where you sort of think you know more than you actually do, you can easily get into trouble by using your mouth a bit too much. So I tended to learn the hard way that in actual fact it's best to say nothing, watch, learn, walk away and um, only go back if you're comfortable. So I didn't I started sort of just taking what I could from classes. I went to many different trainers. Um, I did see stuff I didn't like. Thankfully, nothing horrific. Um, yeah, there's some some force, you know, some handling that I obviously didn't like, but nothing that I would be shocked at. And um, and I just decided just to take what I could. And if I liked the trainer, despite their methods, I would still come back. But if I didn't like the trainer and I didn't like their methods, um, and I felt any any pressure to do it myself, then then I just avoided going back. But um, I did find some good trainers. Colin was one of them, who um, totally were comfortable with me not using force and just you know building the dog's confidence up and um, setting them up to succeed and using my treats as and when I felt would be useful um, which to be fair wasn't an awful lot by the time they got to that level so by the time they're going into group classes I did have a reasonable sit stay heel work recall and retrieve and delivery so I didn't really need the treats um, in the same sort of level as I did when they were sort of you know under one really. Right so do you think that might be a tip for people starting out is to get those basics done in sort of general a good general force free clicker training class and then take them into your gun dog classes Definitely because if I had gone with a young dog who hadn't yet um learnt steadiness and was running in they would definitely put pressure on me to come down on my dog heavily and tell it off um potentially hit it whatever um likewise for a dog that's um pulling on the lead the only thing they would suggest is checking the dog um, using a slip lead. So I definitely didn't go to classes until my dog was steady and was good on the lead and had had the basic retrieve. They're not stopping on the whistle and they're not handling perfectly, um, going for the wrong dummy if you've cast it one way. All those sort of things happens to all dogs of all ages and you can just reset it and, you know, it's not so... You don't need to use aversive so much, I don't think, or I've not had a problem with it. I've just reset the dog and they've not made me feel like I should do anything more than that. Um, but definitely with the basics, that is how they would push you to, to proceed. Right. So I know that you have lots of people coming to see you um, to be in your in your classes. Do you want to say a little bit about your um, classes and what, what training you offer through Lead and Listen and what's available? So um, I do weekly classes. I do specialise mostly in weekday classes because that's I've got children and they're all at school age. Um, but I also now have two trainers that work for me that have I've, have assisted me for years, and now they started um, taking their own classes as well through Lead and Listen. So um, one does Saturdays, which has been very useful because a lot of people um, do want the Saturday classes, um, but I don't like to work weekends, as I'm sure most people feel the same. 
Um, and then I've got another girl that works for me who helps me doing the beginner classes. So we, we mostly do, um, we work towards the grades. So the Gundog Club accredited sort of grading system, which um, is a really good sort of structure to ensure that everyone has a good I- idea of where they're going and they've got options to keep going higher. Um, and it's helped me sort of focus on on sort of, you know, giving them sort of a, a target, be it an assessment day um, or moving to the next level up. So it's it's been really useful to, to sort of work with the Gundog Club with that. Um, and I do think using the Gundog Club grades has kept clients for longer. They they sort of, when they get their rosette for grade one, they are then looking for the grade two. So, um, so yeah, so we do weekly classes um, in groups of sort of six week courses. And then I also do workshops um, at the moment, sort of sort of beginner workshops, more intermediate based workshops. Um, and I'm just recently doing a, a workshop for trainers, so pet dog trainers to learn more about gun dog training so that they can introduce that to their, their clients in their classes. Um, but that's not happened yet, so I'll let you know how that goes. But that's um, something I've just been... I enjoy teaching trainers. I really enjoy teaching people that already know a lot of um, sort of the basics of the science and the theory. So um, I thought I'd just try and focus on a bit more of the more advanced side of the training. Um, and, and yeah, and I still do a tiny bit of dog walking um, and a little bit of dog boarding and some other dog stuff. So just to keep it interesting. Do you find that many of the people who you see doing the Gundog Club grades one, or two, and one and two, do you find they tend to continue on into mainstream Gundog stuff or do they tend to stick with, um, with, with the Gundog Club grades or with just force free only? Or do you see them appearing, for example, in um, you know, local Gundog training classes or competing in working tests or moving ahead like that? Or do most, most people in the whole tend not to? I would say the clients that I have tend not to. I think they are quite intimidated still by the whole gundog world, um, which is a shame because um, it's a real joy when you do actually get involved in the clubs, the local clubs, and you go to these tests. It's really enjoyable, you know, if you've got got a dog at a good level, and it's an absolute thrill to to be able to win something with your dog. So it's a shame they don't, but I understand why, because I don't think they're ever – they ever get to the level that they feel confident that their dog can achieve um, at that, you know, with that sort of competition. So um, they stick to the grades basically. And I don't get many above three. So I get them sort of one, two, three um, are the levels they sort of, I think it's the levels they feel they need to have a really good obedient pet dog. And I only have a handful that actually go and work their dogs. So if you think about the motivation to put the work in, um, is not there so much because they don't need to work their dogs. They're not big on competition or they don't feel they can. Um, so they mainly get their dogs up to a good standard that they, they feel that they, is what they need for a pet dog. Right. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. 
I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. that's one of the things I hope to talk to you about today a little bit is working tests because I know that you've been very successful working tests in fact didn't you just win one with Grace I did I did that was yeah I was I was thrilled I must say it was she's got a lot of potential um but with dogs like that you can push them too quickly and I was really worried I was gonna overface her and and ruin her but she's um yeah she's only done two tests she did one a year ago and she won it which was only one and um it was just a puppy test and then she did that one on Saturday and won it. So yeah, she's got a good track record. So um, yeah, no pressure. I know, the next one, onwards though. and upwards. But no, the next level is going to be hard. It's a novice, and um, it's open to any. You know, I'm not a novice handler anymore. So it's it's a, a big class. They normally have you know forty or fifty dogs, um, and they're any age. So I'll be entering Angus, who's four, against Grace, who's two. So um, she hasn't got anywhere near as much experience as Angus, but she does tend to do what I ask without questioning which is the big plus she just kind of does it so um, and a lot of natural ability which is really really important right so in terms of trying to encourage people to to you know if they if people have been training their dogs in a force-free way um, in, in gun dog training for a while and they want to sort of you know move into the more mainstream world of, of gun dog work and gun dog competitions working to probably the first place where they're going to end up um, doing that and so I thought it might help a little bit to talk about what's involved in a working test what the day involves um, you know the little tests that that happen throughout the day what happens in between the tests and what people are doing then um, just just the whole event really um, I think people don't even know really how to find out about them or anything anything like that so maybe we can sort of make make them more accessible to these people somehow definitely I do have um, a lady that's um been really sort of keen with her young lab and she's got involved in the clubs so she went to she came to actually have one of my dogs at a novice recently um but I was called home because my son was ill so she ended up staying and just helping the club at the Guildford Working Gun Dog Club and then they um they said oh come back and for the special puppy test and help at that one and watch and put out blinds or whatever and she was helping on Saturday and and she learned loads and she said it put together all the things I'm teaching her as to why I teach certain things she could see it she could see all the reasoning behind it so she um she said it was hugely important for her to have watched a working test and helped um and she felt they were so welcoming and friendly that she's now considering doing a novice dog novice handle later in the year so I certainly say you know find out who your local clubs are go along and offer to help at the next working test even if it's just to dish out tea and coffee so you don't feel you've got a big responsibility um or just to put a blind out, literally, just as soon as they signal, you put a, a dummy down um, so that you can feel that you 
you got a bit of knowledge about it. Um, I went to my first working test ever uh, six years ago, and that was the interesting thing. The trophy I just won was what I won with Benji six years ago. Um, And it was the first test I'd ever entered, ever, and I won that trophy. Um, So that was, so winning that one again was lovely because it was just um, see how far I've come with sort of um, in the last six years. Um, But I had no idea at that test and I I only went because my sister-in-law went with her young dog. So I went with her, but I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember I got, I got pulled up on not thanking everyone in the speeches afterwards. And uh, I was like, oh my God. Um, So I was really embarrassed, but I learned my lesson, you know, Um, but I had never been. So I had no idea what to do when they say, right, the winner, could you come and give a speech? Um, I was just a bumbling mess and just so happy with my dog. (laughs) That's all I said. (laughs) And um, forgot to thank everybody that was involved in the day, which obviously you learn from when you watch uh, an awards, you know. Um, So definitely going and watching and helping. They are very friendly, especially when you're going to offer free help because they're desperate for it. So um, they will certainly make you feel welcome. And then they'll probably let you know when the training classes are and they'll have different levels. So you can consider getting involved um, in that way. Yeah. And just so people know why they're desperate for help, it's because most people want to run their dogs, don't they? And they can't be standing throwing dummies if they're running dogs. So a lot of the committee members or members um, are there um, because they want to run their dogs. So um, so they have to give up their their right to run if they help. So, yes, they, they look for sort of people that aren't yet ready for that or they haven't got a dog in that level, that category to to come and help. Hmm. And what sort of standards should people be before they think about entering a working test? Because I sort of see two extremes. On the one side, I see people who they're almost perfectionists. They're almost like, oh, we're not quite there. We're not ready yet. And we're not, you know, they're never going to get to enter basically because they're never going to reach perfection. And then there are people at the other end who enter way before their dogs are steady already. um, And it's potentially a bit of a waste of people's time to be throwing dummies for them. So I don't know what your thoughts are about that. It depends on who you are, I think. I mean, some people go to tests and they're happy that they get a few scores and a few zeros don't bother them. I, I'm i not that person. I go with the idea that I, I could win it. I've got a chance of winning. If I don't, it's not the end of the world, obviously. But um, I learn from what went wrong and I and I, and I take something from it. But um, other people, are, like I said, enjoy the day out. It is a really fun day out. It's really enjoyable. If you're quite social, then obviously you, you get to stand around chatting all day <laughs> in between your tests. Um, and they're fine with the fact that they've got the odd mistake where they get a zero because the dog's picked the wrong dummy or it's run in or something. Um, so it depends on who you are and what where you are with your training and, and sort of um, where you are with your life. There's lots of people that are retired and it's just something that they enjoy doing. But if you work a lot, you want you don't want to give up your time it, for it to be wasted if that's what you're looking to achieve is, is getting a new awards. Right. So basically anyone should go along and have a go and try it out and see what the day is yeah like. I think go and watch see the standard for that category so be it novice dog novice handler which is the category for the the beginners um I would always recommend doing that over a special puppy test because special puppy test even if you've got a young dog the tests are um they're the same level as the novice dog novice handler which is what we did at the weekend we they ran a special puppy and a novice dog novice handler the tests were the same the same level um but the special puppy uh, you're up against people like me who's a trainer okay so that's the difference. If they're doing the novice dog, novice handler, the competition's not so high. So they've got a better, better chance of getting somewhere. Right. And can you give us an idea about the, the 
different tests that happen through the day and what sort of things people might expect to be asked of them and their dog? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll just go through what I did at the weekend because that's easy because I've just done it. Um, so we had five tests and so you get a, a group, so you get numbered. So one to 20 will go in one group and you'll go to test one and there'll be a steward that will guide you over to test one. And then there'll be a different, obviously, judge for each test. There's normally four or five tests. And with that, you get your, your group. You go with that group to the first test. And then when you've done your test, you move on to the next test. And that's how the sort of day runs. Um, you don't get your scores at the time. So you just do your test and all the scores are sort of secret. And you, they collate them at the end. Um, and you basically, the test we had on Saturday... Um, the first one was lovely. It was just a, a, quite a long mark into some some reedy grass. So the dogs have to be steady. They have you have to wait for the judge to tell you to go. So the dog has to be totally steady. As in, sometimes when they say number five, you can send your dog. Some dogs might go on that. So you've got to make sure you proof that that send. Um, they obviously go out nicely on a mark and hunt nicely. Keep the area. So some dogs were going way out of the area and they would have been penalised quite heavily for that. And then obviously they pick it cleanly. They come back and they've got to deliver to hand. Um, another dog was put out because it went to deliver and they left some dummies on the floor from previous com um, competitors. And it was a young one-year-old dog who then grabbed the other dummies. So little things like that can go wrong if you're not aware of how, how they, what they expect of the dog. They do not expect a dog to nick a dummy that's on the floor next to the judge. So little things that to be noted that you may not, you know, people may not realise. Um, so that was just a marked retrieve. Um, that was my first test. So I got a 20 for that one. That was lovely. A nice confidence builder. Um, next test was a long mark in a wood, but you couldn't see the dummy through it very clearly and you couldn't see the dummy. So the dog had to hear the shot and just for a split second see the dummy come through the, the, the trees um they don't see it land either so grace didn't mark it at all so i had to just send her using my arm and hoping she'd run towards the uh, the shot and obviously the line i gave her um and yes so that was a mark and then when they've come back on their way back a blinds put out halfway and just off to the right so you had to send them back up the track stop them and put them onto the dummy on the right which is actually quite right. a big ask, I think, for a special puppy test. Um, yeah. So, so that was the second test. Um, she made a bit of a mess of that, but thankfully we still got seventeen. But um, she didn't believe me to go back, so she kind of stuck a little bit, and then I pushed her back, and, and we got her there. But it was a bit of a. She's playing up a bit with the old. Um, you know, you put a second dummy in the same place. Well, I've been doing it without the dummy to handle her. Um, and then putting a left right. and right to a dummy that I'll put out for her when she, if she stops. And so she got savvy to that. So sending her back to the same area has, interestingly, in just one week fallen apart. <laughs> so we, yeah. we fixed it, but it was something that she just kind of got this kind of, oh, you're playing that game with me. And she, yeah, so I couldn't do that anymore. It's sort of juggling oh, act, isn't always, it? Like, always, always. So many different, yeah, so you build one thing you up and then something else thing, messes up. So yeah, and then you have to do that and then, You yeah. fix that one and then you've got, my stop whistle was my problem area. So I was trying to do handling drills and by doing handling drills, I lost her outrun. So um, I've got her outrun back and I'm now back to sort of just doing less handling just to get her outrun nice again. But um, so, yeah, so that was a bit of a challenge. Um, but she's such a fast dog and she's got an, a, an amazing nose she gets me out of trouble so she just covers the ground picks it and before you know it she's back with, with you and you're like oh and so she 
gets me out of trouble in that respect as she just kind of she flies around like a loony and, and picks things so um before the judges realize what's happened the dog, the dog is back so um uh, that's that's the second test so it's a, a handling exercise really and um the third test a walk up so there's generally a walk up in in every working test everyone i know known there's been a walk up um so this is for a, a lower level so a special puppy a novice dog novice handler it would be generally a two dog walk up so and you can get a four dog walk up for a higher level where they've got to wait for three other dogs to retrieve before it's potentially their turn um two dog walk up for this test was just a short mark each and a longer mark each so you just walk to heel off lead with the judge in the middle you're standing either side of the judge and um one at a time you'll get asked to pick a retrieve um so your dog has to be steady at heel so they have to walk to heel um they have to be steady when the other dog is sent for their retrieve and they have to um do their own retrieve and bring it straight back and again they do another bit of heel work and then a longer retrieve um they change the walk-up tests obviously sometimes they 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 have a across the dog you know and they sort of send them across to the other side and other times it might be behind so the walk-up test will vary but it is generally checking steadiness and heel work and marking ability so that was right. that one and interestingly um colin my other half was the judge on that test so grace is used to him hand throwing <laughs> next to her so she was staring at him and when the shot went off, I had to quickly move my hand and say mark because she, she wasn't going to mark it. So um, so she didn't have a clear mark on the long one. So we had to thankfully get her back there on, on her believing me, which she does. And, and she winded it. But um, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't plain sailing that the test, there was little problems that you can't you can't you can't help. You know, the dogs just don't sometimes mark when you want them to. And then it's a real challenge to get them obviously out there. Um, that we had two more tests. One was a mark out in front in an open field, and then they had a blind. What's the angle? It was not a ninety degree away from it. It was sort of in between, and it was uh, a blind in the wood. So you can imagine they'd been out on a mark. They then have to go sort of towards that same area for a blind in the wood, but the dogs were all pulling to where they had the mark. So they were struggling to get them away from that area. Um, other dogs were mismarking, winding the blind and picking the blind that was already put out. So there were lots of zeros on that test. Um, so I learned from this. So I listened to everybody. I thought, OK, I'm not going to let her anywhere near where the mark was. So I sent her way over and stopped her and, and handled her onto it rather than doing a straight line. Because I just thought for a young dog, I don't want her pulling onto it and sort of you know, I'd rather treat it as a handling exercise. Um, and thankfully, she got 19. She just, I had to handle it just one extra than they would have liked. So um, so that was okay. And then the last test was a mark out the front in the open field. Um, leave that one, turn them 90 degrees away from that into a wood for a blind. Um, and then back for the memory, which um, was all about... Where, how we do it in classes is teach them to stay at heel, pivot heel, you know, turning with you away from a distraction. So mm -hmm. it was really testing the dog's ability to leave that and turn off and go for a, a retrieve that they don't know anything about. So it was a, a challenge, but um, I'd done my homework. And thankfully, as soon as I Grace saw me, I sort of, she looked up at me because I held her there for long enough that she was going to look up. And then as soon as she looked up, I turned her and she um, thankfully went for the blind. 
picked it fine and then she um, used her, her nose to, to, she went out there and picked the memory. So that was good. So she got a 19, I think, for that one too. Excellent. So I think that sometimes people imagine that, that there are lots of people watching you and that one, one of the things that potentially can put people off doing tests is they think that, you know, they have a big audience and everyone's there staring at them and watching their, you know, they just feel very afraid of that scenario. But I think most of the time for most tests, no one's even able to see the test taking place and not, we're not allowed to. They're not allowed to have any advantage over the next dog, um, be it handler or dog. So um, they always position you away from the test so you can't see. So the only person watching is potentially obviously the judge and the steward or any people that are watching. Um, I did have Jules Morgan watching me because she happened to go to the test. So she was um, watching myself and her friend Jill um, go around the test. Right. Um, so no, so you don't generally have an audience. The worst scenario which I've had is a runoff. So if dogs um, all get the same scores, you have to do a runoff, which is in front of everybody. Um, so that's the only time you're potentially going to be in a situation where you have to perform in front of an audience. Um, and that is quite scary. I will admit that. And in terms of etiquette and what, you know, you mentioned before not knowing that you were supposed to give a speech. I think it's pretty unlikely that most people are going to win their first ever working test. But it must be other things throughout the day that um, you think it's a good idea to do. For example, thanking the judge after each yep. test. And that. Yep, doing that. And also um, at the end when you finish for the day it is etiquette. If, if you can see the judges um, to just shake their hand and say thank you um, for giving up their time. Um, and that's something that they like, you know. Um, the etiquette, I'm just trying to think of it. Um, you can, as far as clothes and stuff, generally for working tests, it doesn't matter. You're not around games, so you don't have to wear camouflage or anything. But people just wear practical clothes that, that you would for training. Um, people do wear their sort of training bags, vests as well, just to, to keep everything the same as what the dog's used to when they're training. That's how I do it anyway. I want it, don't want the dog to think anything's weird. You know, it's all normal. And um, and you do have a lot of waiting, so you do have to um, stand around in the holding area, and it can take up to an hour sometimes to wait for your turn. So you have to train your dog to be able to sit around um, and do nothing when they're hearing gunshot. So you can imagine the pistols going off, you know, they know stuff's happening and they have to switch off from it, which is... Um, it wasn't easy for Grace being her first time waiting around all that time, uh, but she was mostly quiet and calm. Um, and with the experience, obviously, that gets easier. Um, but the shot's quite important, isn't it, to make sure that people have introduced their dogs to shot Absolutely. Yeah, there will always be shot. Test. And so they have to be comfortable with shot and not unsteady to shot, which some dogs, they might be comfortable with it, but they're excited by it. So, um, yeah, definitely they need to have that sorted. Um, a drop dummy is, is, for a lot of people, is a, a zero. A lot of judges will straight away agree as a group that that's going to be a zero. Um, so you have to have your delivery. Um, and running in is a zero. And any noise is also potentially a zero, depending on how bad it is. So um, those need to be, you know, sorted before you, you turn up at a test. So it sounds like there's no uh, water test. Uh, there is, and there normally is. There normally is on every uh, test, but it depends on the ground. So this ground just didn't have good water, so they didn't want to put dogs oh, in right. a, an, an area that just wasn't safe or, or nice entry. So, um, But m most grounds, they do look for a ground that has the potential for a walk-up, that has potentially ditches or um, some sort of obstacle, woodland um, and water, so that they can really test the dogs under every condition because it's fine. You 
your dogs are winning stuff but if you've never had a water test they don't know you know if they can even achieve that so so how do people find out about working tests if they um because i know there are places online aren't there which list them there's facebook groups and um so you've got any tips for people about which facebook groups to yeah, join or yep. websites I think, to keep an eye on um, test trials and tribulations is a group that they do have um i think the, the pinned post has all the all the tests for the year and trials um ftms um it's a it's a software that you sign up to and you enter your tests online so you pay through paypal and you enter online and on the ftms it has a calendar so you can see what what's coming up that month um what the clubs are the dates uh, what what level it is and um so that's another way of finding out um that's how i do it um there's also i think the kennel club have um, a list of different clubs so you can find out your local clubs and see when they're running tests um and yeah some i know di stevens used to collate a list and put it on her website uh, while and briar um and some other um gundog clubs and gundog trainers do have it so it's just sometimes you can just google uh i don't know uh, retriever working test 2019 and and you might find a list so it's um it's just searching out there right well i think that's probably everything about working tests that i can think of to ask you unless there's anything else you can think of on that no i do think i i love it and it's not for everyone competition isn't for everybody but i do think i have dabbled in trials and i would say the working test is a fun day out trials is quite a serious day out um so I definitely, you know, if I had a choice, working tests are sort of a really enjoyable day out. And if your dog happens to do well, then it's a wonderful day out. It's, it's a really special day when you actually get to get in the awards. So, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. Whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show.
thing. Just to go back to um, the subject of people moving across from, well, people who want to train using force-free methods um, and coming into contact with people who um, are training using aversives or more mainstream methods, we could say. Um, what do you think are the areas in training that people struggle with um, when they are trying to only train using force free, what, where are the areas, the things they find, they find harder? So I'm thinking like for spaniels and the HBRs, it's going to be like the sit to flush and the don't chase that thing. And for retrievers, is that it's similar? It's heel work, say, I think. I think um, some retrievers struggle with heel work, especially, you know, off lead and they start pulling and, um, and they do struggle with, because food isn't so motivating for the dog when they've got the option of dummies. So I struggled a lot with my first Labrador Benji with heel work because once I was out there with dummy throwers and shot, the food didn't work. So I'd, I had this kind of in-between stage where food worked and then suddenly it didn't work and I, I had to try and find a scenario that was in-between to build him up. But um, often you don't have the option. It's kind of like as soon as there's gunshot, that's when he pulls, you know, when that's when he starts, you know heading off in front of me a bit too fast so um so that's one area I think um I think with positive training I think we get better deliveries I think from what I've seen um from people that I've trained with who do use clicker and or just rewards they have a better delivery so we don't generally have to worry about the delivery when we go to classes um stopping on the whistle that potentially is another area that um you'd struggle if you don't have it because the only way they know is to go and holler at the dog um and if you're obviously not wanting to do that sort of in a situation in a class where you feel a bit uncomfortable because you don't know what to do to, to get your dog to stop um but i think a lot of the other areas um they train the same you know they build the dogs up their confidence up they build up memories they build up blinds um if the dog's learning, they don't punish them. It's only if they've made what they think are mistakes based on the fact that they understand it and chose not to. That's how they see it, I think. Right. So I think you're saying something, um, particularly with the heel work thing, about using the reinforcers that are around us in the environment. Uh, you know, in terms of the dummy, like you can get that dummy, but if you're steady at heel, and then you can, then I'll, I'll send you for it. So that becomes the reinforcer. That's, that's the, how they the always train. Heel. You know, I mean, I've. I've I'm constantly around trainers that, that don't use um, food rewards, but they just say you don't get that dummy if you're acting like a fool, you know? You don't get that dummy if you're pulling me, you're not steady, you're um, whining or whatever. Um, so that's how they train, is, um, and that's how I train, really. I won't let my dog have a, a, a retrieve, which is a reward, if I feel that they're not doing what I, what I need them to do. So um, it's not so much dishing out the food, it's dishing out the retrieves. Mm, but there's still reinforcement and reinforces in a way for the totally for the dogs. else they so, would be doing it you know it, it's yeah so there's a lot built into even mainstream gun dog work which is reinforcement based and we just need to identify those bits and and keep them i think the um the main areas because i sort of i say to people my dogs work at shoot i've never trained them to do a 20 minute sit stay with huge distractions of gunshot and birds dropping um it all comes with sort of the whole process of learning the basics building that up and then you get to the stage that they generalize it you know that it's kind of they get if they wait they get to do the big hunting sweeping through the woods and picking birds so they wait for as long as it takes before they hear that that whistle at the end of the drive and I release them to, to pick up so um the whole it, one 
sort of reinforces the next, reinforces the next. So it's like a big chain of reinforcement that sort of flows that they just, um, you don't necessarily need to, to sort of see it as, have I given it a treat for that? Because the stop whistle, the tail wags, why? Because you're going to send them left. So that anticipation of that retrieve, do you know what I mean? It all sort of, you know, you don't have to feed that stop whistle. You don't have to even chuck a ball in their mouth once you've trained it because that tail wags telling me that the anticipation's there, that the next cue is going to be getting them to the dummy. Yes. And it all becomes a sort of cycle of you and the dog working together and the dog comes to trust you because they know that your directions are, are sending them to the dummy, which is the thing they all want. All it is so. is it, if you just build that trust you've got it you know that's all I say is it's all about trust it's all about that partnership and um, if they believe you and if you set up your training so that um, you do it all comes together so I I get a stop she actually stops I say right she does a right and she picks it's like hallelujah yeah this is what I need this is the training that's required for my dog to stop and listen to me it's not about the ball in their mouth when I say stop not anymore it's about me her trusting that when I say stop it's for a very good reason and she has to to listen right and so where do you see sort of um force be gone training going in the future because I can sort of it's hard to predict where things are going to go and the one way one way that I can see things going is that it ends up being two almost two different camps there's like the force free people and then there's the mainstream people I don't want it to end up being like that but I'm worried that that could be I think that is I think there's become. more and more people using our methods than we realize I think a lot don't shout about it because they don't really feel the need to so um, there's a lot of people who trial their dogs who I know um, use the clicker for getting the basics in their puppies um, fixing problems that have come up you know positioning or, or delivery issues um, but they just don't shout about it and they don't want to be I don't know made to feel lesser because they're using rewards like that so they tend to not say anything so I think it's it's a shame because I think if more people knew that they had their success through using those methods they might be more open to trying them um so it is I think from just my dealings with the, the sort of more traditional gun dog world um they 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 I tell them little bits without any pressure and you can tell that they're thinking about it so for example last night um I was at a training class at Windsor with some all A panel judges with Grace and um and one of them said, Oh, I see it in, in some European countries that the dog's coming back with the dummy and they, they lob a ball over, over the head. And I was like, What well, when they're on the way back with the dummy? And he said, Yeah and I was like I was trying to work out why they would do that and all I could think of was and then they intercept them before they actually get to the ball. And all I could imagine is that they're trying to get the speedy, you know, run back. The dog comes back with the dummy fast right. because they often slow, you know, come back slower. And I said, "Well, what I do is 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 I basically get my dog in, and then if they've done a good job, I throw them a ball behind me." So I sort of given him that kind of like, "Oh, she does this." Um, but I said, as you saw at the last <laughs> training session we did, where she couldn't find, um, I can get her back instantly because she hears that whistle and she knows that she's going to get a ball. So she, I have no issues with getting her back. Um, even though she's not picked and a lot of dogs obviously don't come back when they haven't found their retrieve so um, so I just drop in little bits of information little tools that they could possibly use um, and I think that's what's going to happen is they're just going to start to see um, little things that have worked for me and other people like me that train with these other trainers and ask me questions about how I got that 
and um, and then have a play with it. So I do think um, certainly people are um, going more that way from what I've seen. So it's going to be a gradual It's going to be slow, but I do think it's going to, they're, they're always going to fall back on aversives because um, there are times when, you know, I think it is quicker at times to be able to quickly tell the dog that's wrong. Um, but I do think when they have certain problems, like a slow in run, um, I don't know, like positioning, that they could really fix it quickly with food or with a ball. And I think if they knew that and they had the information, they would use it. I don't think they're stupid. <laughs> they're intelligent people who love working their dogs and they love their dogs. So, of course, if they had the information and they felt it would work, they would do it. So I think there's some right. there's a certain amount of uh, there's not the right information out there for them. So I, I think they um, one of the ladies last night said, oh, I fixed my delivery issue because I was going to help her with it with the clicker. And she goes, but I couldn't get on with the clicker and treating because every time he saw the food, he spat out the dummy. And, um, and I, I just thought I'm not going to go down that road because I know she's made her decision because she she asked for help and then didn't actually get the help because she chose to carry on her way. So. Um, that's what I'm saying. It's it's they've got some idea and they want to play with it, but they don't know how to do it. So they it goes wrong and they give up on it. So I do right. think they almost yeah. need to see it. They almost need to mm. see the process, like to see demonstrate someone it. Doing and, and also, yeah. So I do it. think yeah. um, that's my next stage is considering sort of offering some workshops for actual existing trialers and and gum dog handlers who compete, um, so that when they get their next puppy they can play with some ideas of getting the hand touch to get help with the heel work and delivery, um, doing some, you know, some positioning with the clicker and um, doing it from puppies. Cause I think what I think is good is that they are really comfortable to use treats with puppies, um, but not adult dogs. So I think if I can encourage them to use these methods on their puppies, they will see how effective they are and they'll be comfortable with using them. And then they'll start using it for adult dogs as well because they can see it works. Right. And then, of course, the reinforcer switches over to being the retrieve. And yep. And yeah. as, as you probably know, I've probably told you that um, all my dogs now, I don't use food at all in their training. Um, the only time I use it is if I need to tweak something. So if their pivot heel, when I'm turning them off a retrieve, isn't tidy, then I'll go back to using luring and food if um, if their heel work just generally isn't great. But the the reinforcement for, for all three of mine who are really you know big on retrieving is the retrieve. Or a tennis ball, so a thrown ball. Right. So you mentioned they're running classes for for trainers who want to switch into being more force free than they might already be at the moment. Um, and I know that you've also mentioned your grade grade one, two, and three courses with leading listeners up, right? Um, I'm just trying to sort of help people understand what you might be able to offer them and where you're based and and that kind of thing did you say before where you No, so i'm in at the moment i'm in surrey in in um, near sort of chop and west end um and we also have we have a one acre field there which is just ideal for beginners because it's it's got no hunting really it's quite flat and just a paddock and then we've got um another ground which is about 18 acres in egham which is um only about 20 minutes away from from the west end field and that's got um, it's more sort of purpose built for gun dog training. So we do have um, sugar beet and we have mown strips to help them on their outruns. And we have um, yeah, long grass and jumps and stuff. So that one's for more advanced uh, training. 
Right. And if people were to come and train with you, would they start in your grade one class or would they start with your, do you have other pet classes and they would move into your? Yep. I used to do a lot of um, puppy one, puppy two adolescent classes, but we've all realised that everybody that comes through at the moment, the sort of puppy classes are um, gun dogs. And they've obviously come to me because they know I specialise in that. So we've started um, not doing the adolescent classes so much and we let the other trainers locally handle all those clients. And we just tend to have the puppies. And then from that, they go to a a very beginner sort of grade one class um, and work their way up from there. So um, we do yeah mostly gun dog classes now with the puppy puppy classes for anyone. But obviously the gun dogs within that often then stay with us. Right. Excellent. And your website is? It's leadandlisten.co.uk. Right. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much, Colette, for um, giving up your time and talking to us today. It's been really interesting, and I hope it's given people some sort of inspiration and ideas about getting into working tests and, and getting involved more, um, taking things a step further than where they might already be at the moment. Um, thank you very much for your, for your time. No problem. Thank you. Hold the line. So I know that I said at the beginning of this episode that I would just say a few words about HPR working tests and how these differ from retriever working tests. If you're listening from North America, you might not even know what a HPR is. So HPR stands for hunt, point and retrieve. And probably most dogs that we call HPRs fall into the category of versatile dogs, maybe bird dogs, um, but definitely versatile dogs in, um, in North America. So Now we know what they are. Um, They have a different category of working tests. And the main difference is that we don't have a walk up. So the idea of the dog walking at heel off lead while retrieves are thrown does not exist for HPRs. Um, And instead, we have a hunting test. Now, the hunting test is not looking at finding real live game because in working tests, we're not using real live game. Although if you go first, you might be lucky or unlucky depending on how you look at it and actually have some game in your beat but usually there's not any game in the beat and that's not the intention um, of the test setters to enable there to be game there so really they are looking at the dog's natural hunting ability uh, ability to cover the ground that you've been assigned and not to miss any areas uh, ability to use the wind and lots more so just being very brief here but that's that's the general idea now at some point in the hunting test there is usually not always but usually a shot fired and a dummy thrown and the purpose of that is to ensure the dog is steady to shot so that is also commonly a part of the hunting test for hprs now i can't talk about spaniel working tests because i don't have a spaniel but hopefully we'll have someone on the podcast soon who competes with spaniels in the uk and can tell us about spaniel working tests hold the line so that's all for this week, folks. Remember, if you've got any training questions, you can email me at galadie at mac.com. Or if you've got any suggestions for things that we can cover in the podcast, any sort of subjects that you'd like more information on. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please remember to subscribe and also to give us five stars on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app you use. <laughs> Hold on, hold on, hold on.